welcome to episode 21 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com, and for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplayer Studio, we are in the presence of nobility. Sir Kristen, Queen of the Desert, joins us from Sacramento, California. Many of you may be familiar with Kristen from the popular podcast, This Modern Death, episodes of which I now collect as items. Perhaps if you search on eBay or do a search on BitTorrent, you may be able to become acquainted with a great podcast. Never fear, though, Kristen will be hitting the airwaves again soon with a new podcast called Bad Wrong Fun, with her husband, Sean Hayworth, and a rotating third host, beginning with Sean Nittner, whom you may be familiar with from Narrative Control, as well as being the guest for episode four on Penny Red. So without further ado, hi there, Kristen. How's it going? It's going all right. Thanks for having me on. Apparently, it's very hot where you are at the moment. Oh yeah, upper nineties. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what that is in uh, in in real temperature. I think is that like uh, is it 30, Fahrenheit? Thirty degrees Celsius? Is it something like that? <laughs> anyway, I'm talking about the weather. What a terrible way to open. In any case, uh, so that people can get familiar with uh, with your background here. How long have you been a role player? Um, my husband actually got me into it, and I think it's been about six years now. Right. right about. <laughs> and so how did you uh, get started and uh, what did you play first? You know, uh, I, w- I was in college. It just it never came up in high school. It was, wasn't anything that I was ever exposed to. So when my husband, uh, my boyfriend at the time, started going to people's houses and, you know, doing this thing and being gone for hours, I, I got really curious. I wanted to go and watch. So I went and watched and they were playing Firefly at the time. Right. And I sat there and I watched them play and I was like... This is ridiculous. What, <laughs> you guys are just saying what you're going to do and pretending. I don't understand. This isn't for me. Like, I'm just going to stay home. Right. Well, then he planned a home game and was like, no, no, no. You just need to try it. Uh, and we dove into Shadowrun. Right. And I played the gun bunny straight out of the book. I can still open and just point to the character. Right. Uh, and I just kind of got hooked. I don't know. If it was just, I was always into acting, I don't know if it was just that it was close to improv, but the interaction and the social aspect to it, and then just, you know, shooting things. Right. So. <laughs> sure, shooting things is always, is always fun. So, I, you mentioned that uh, you were um, sort of skeptical about the whole business and then failed to see its allure. What, uh, from the perspective of uh, an older person, uh, was it the lack of... Um, strong rules or it seemed like stuff was just happening and there didn't seem to be any rhyme uh, nor reason to the way that it was happening that it was an original hurdle from you because I've tried uh, to explain it to my wife and as far as I'm concerned no matter what I'm doing I'm cheating because there's no it doesn't appear to be any rules about why people are doing whatever <laughs> it is um, and and so what particularly about it did, did you struggle with initially I think it, I think it just seems silly to me that it wasn't yeah, it, it it did seem a little a little loose, a little unformatted. I wasn't accustomed to the the plot of their game or sure about the rules or anything like this. But here you had this living room full of growing men and a woman, and they sat there with some dice that seemed completely arbitrary to me and said, "Yeah, I'm going to fire the ship gun." And they'd roll the die and give the number and be like, oh, well, you missed and your pants fall off. And I'm like, right. what the hell is going on right well, now? Well, your Firefly game is different different to, my, to mine. I don't think your pants ever fell off. But uh, Yeah, I think uh, somebody lost their pants twice. Oh, no, and- your pants fell off during a gun battle. Who is is it hot in here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's when you really started to wonder, right? Hey. Yeah, and it just seemed... 
it just seems like a silly thing for these people to be sitting and doing. Yeah. Um, and so it just, it didn't seem like it was the thing for me at all. Right. And the thing is that there's not really any easy way in for people to get a grip on it. Like if you're going to play a game, it doesn't really matter what game it is. People get the idea. There are a whole bunch of people. There's a goal. They're trying to complete the goal and then they win the game. Or if it's a sport, you get the idea. There's some way that there's, there's, you know, we're managing to, um, figure out who's who's winning or who's doing the best here. It's, it's easy for people to get a grip on, but in role-playing, there's not really any of those touchstones that, that people have for regular-type stuff. Was there anything in particular that suddenly made it, it click for you? I, I really think that it was, like I said, the improv aspect to it. Um, yeah, and it was... Because I, I have always been the theater nerd. I have always been, you know, the improv and the the impromptu acting and all that. And so then you uh, you sit down with these characters that are really, really cool. Um, and in Shadowrun, you are by nature very, very cool for the most part. Right. And you can just do anything with them. And you, you have the scenes that you act out and the dice that represents things that you're acting out. Uh, that and... It was a reason for us and our friends to get together. Right. Well, that's so another they, big part of it too, right, is that, that social aspect. As you get older, your windows for social interaction get smaller and smaller as your family and relationship commitments start to swallow up more of your available time. Plus, on top of that, you've, you know, you've got work. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's an easy way, I guess, for people to get in in as much as it gives them a chance to, to chat with people. But one of the ideas that, that Sean and I... Uh, well, Sean sort of floated in episode four and uh, we expanded upon was this idea that um, role-playing uh, began from the tabletop wargaming scene, but nowadays we've got a real there's a spectrum all the way from the real simulationist, heavily strategized games at one end all the way through to the virtually improv games at the other end, games like, say, for example, Fiasco. And we were wondering if perhaps if role-playing had begun at the um, improv end, then the the ratio of girls to boys might have been the flip of what it is now, but because it began at the at the sort of strategy game, then it tended to appeal more to uh, males. Do you think there's anything in that? Um, I I think yeah, but partially because war gaming and miniatures, you know, tanks, cars, that kind of stuff, is always something that's pandered to guys. Um. I don't know. I, I don't have a daughter. Uh, I was raised in kind of a funny way that there wasn't really a difference between how my brother and how my sister and I were treated. Sure. Um, but you do that see it a lot. A funny way. That sounds like, a, sounds like a, a good, wholesome sort of a way to be raised. Yeah. Well, it. I didn't realize it was weird until I got older. And people right. were like, that's a guy thing. Why are you doing that thing? Oh, and I'm like... Saying. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um and I don't know if that's why more guys play war games or if it's just a Mel Arena sort of thing. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Hmm. Okay, so you started off uh, with uh, watching a game of Shadow Run where people, uh, sorry, with Firefly where people's pants keep flying off. And then you went <laughs> to a game of, uh, of Shadow Run where I'm hoping people keep their pants on. And then after Shadow Run, what did you play? We, we got pretty heavy into World of Darkness. Um, I think we were attracted to it mostly because it's, you know, the 
I'm using air quotes here. The oh, horror I see those game. Air quotes. The listeners don't know the benefit of it. But if you if you put your hands up at home and make little air quotes right now, you'll yeah, you make feet. the air quotes while I say horror game around World of Darkness right. right there. But we we still have shelves full of all the core books and a bunch of supplements and just tons and tons of books. And then we get into the system, and it would never do what we wanted. Right. It wasn't a horror story. It was a social story. Right. Right. That was. Uh a question that I was going to ask you, I've been forewarned by uh, by Sean a little bit, that um, did you, uh, starting six years ago, I'm guessing that this was based on the old World of Darkness, though? Nope. I've only ever only played new? new World of Darkness. Oh, right. So you must have been right at the very start of the new World of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, right when all of it started to come out. Oh, okay. In that case, my question will be uh, will be irrelevant then, because I was going to ask you about Wraith. I was excited to find somebody that might have played Wraith, but apparently... I've come up short again. Never mind. <laughs> You'd have to talk to my husband about that. I think we still have a copy. Oh, right. And do you know if he played it at all? And if so, maybe you could uh, maybe you could tell him what an awesome host I am, and then maybe he can come on the show and we can uh, we can talk about running Wraith, because that was one of the things about the World of Darkness that I really wanted to get into. And uh, But well, I'll save that conversation for, for him, perhaps. Um, so um, it sounds like this is not the case, but just in case, um, one of the things that a number of girl guests have, have said, and Satine from episode 14 was, was saying that you know, she runs a D&D group and a lot of girls age 26 or, or around that age, you know, mid-20s, uh, were really interested in Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing, but were told by brothers um, and or male friends that, that role-playing, you know, wasn't for girls, and so they were sort of shooed away even though they were really interested in it, and then only came back to it later on when they learned they didn't have to take no from a from a guy did you have you had sounds like you had no contact with it previously or did you have any and were shooed away um i went to relatively small schools uh that were a lot of mostly academic and sports right uh so i'd heard of dnd i think on an episode of celebrity Jeop- no it was um it was an episode of saturday night live right with a it was some skit like geek, nerd, or dweeb. Right. And like, it just came up like this D&D. I knew that it was Dungeons & Dragons. Until I played in that Shadowrun game, I had no clue what it was. Right. At all. I had no concept of it. Right. And the whole... I I hear a lot of stories um, of women running into this resistance as far as gaming with guys go. That... You know, guys want to have their guy group or, you know, it's a it's a guy activity and they're not okay with women getting involved in it. Um, personally, it hasn't really come up very often for me. I know it happens. I'm not saying anyone's wrong. Oh, no. uh, I mean, you can only but, speak from your own perspective, though, right? Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm pretty bullheaded. I'm, I'm pretty stubborn. Uh, and you're always going to run into some misogyny and some sexism here and there, but I've never had it to the point where I haven't been invited into a game. Right. Or if it's been there, I guess I've ignored it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I just, uh, I'm, as I've said a number of times, you know, I'm just flabbergasted by the whole idea of why you wouldn't want anybody to, to role mm-hmm. play with you. I'm, I, as I've, um, as I said before, I came from a small town and, uh, if anybody showed even the least interest, and I'd be like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, you can play, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, sure, you can play," um, and so this idea that anybody's, anybody's been shunned is something completely uh, alien to me. But as you say, you know, that's something that is a relatively common thing that, that women have experienced in the past, and I'm just I, I'm unable to understand why that uh, 
what that might be. So what are you playing now? I, I'd like to pretend like I play this, you know, widespread of games and do all this, all these new indie games. We play Burning Well, right. just straight up. That's that's almost exclusively what we play anymore. Um, I was involved in a Burning Empires campaign sure. for the second time right. that crashed in the first phase again. Right. Uh, but we're hoping to start another one of those up. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much Burning Will. Um, all the time. (laughs) I'd really like to get back into Dresden Files RPG just because I really liked the fate system and I liked uh, how the game went with that, but when? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's often difficult to find time. Um, I wouldn't feel too bad about um, just play, you say just to play Burning Wheel, but um, one of the ideas that I've I've floated with a number of of guests and and I'd be interested in your opinion on is that my feeling is that... um, people have a role-playing soulmate, a game that just gets them. And it, it may be that some of the people that played uh, Dungeons & Dragons right from the start, you know, they just hit that you know, that game that perfectly fit them right from the very start. And, and sometimes it takes going through a whole bunch of, of different ones, you know, just like dating regular style, I suppose, going mm-hmm. through a whole bunch of different games until you find that one that just sort of fits you and, and feels comfortable and, and play and makes role-playing the experience that uh, that you enjoy. Is that? Do you think that Burning Wheel uh, is, is that for you? Oh, Definitely. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's how the beliefs are structured, how the reward is structured, how the game flows. There's still some parts of it that drive me crazy. Uh, we're currently broadcasting our Burning Wheel games on Wednesday nights uh, using the Hangout sure. feature. Uh, and it goes to YouTube. If you want to watch them, it's S. Hayworth. Uh, that's the YouTube account. Right. And our sessions are on there. Right. Uh, there's still parts of Burning Wheel that drive me crazy. Range and cover, just stuff that... We can do it time and time again, but it's so bulky that it's hard for me to grasp all the different pieces of it. But the core part of Burning Will is creating your beliefs, creating your instincts, your traits, and then fighting for what you believe in. Like, that is the Burning Will tagline right there, is you go out and you fight for what you believe in. So instead of the GM generally having this overarching... um, you know, plot that they're going to put the players into, the players are pursuing what they really want to do. Sure. So I know a lot of times when we sit down to play, my husband, Sean, who runs the game, doesn't have much in the way of notes except to react to what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's the best way to create an organic game that people are are invested in is being sure to um, take into consideration all the things that the that the players want to do with their characters. I guess the only downside of that can be is if you've got five or six characters which have all got very divergent ideas about the way they want their story to go, it can create either a fractured sort of a, a campaign or it can create a, a a game where people aren't getting enough, you know, face time on any particular issue if everybody's, you know, on the same page. How do you accommodate that? Well, we've, we've ran into that before. Uh, we had a game before we moved down to Sacramento that... Everyone was together in the beginning, but slowly what our characters wanted diverged during the course of the game to the point where we were opposing. Uh, And it didn't end well. It kind of went really, really terrible places that I would not like to talk about. Uh, It wasn't really a bad feelings kind of thing because we're very much... if. If you're going to do something in one of our games that you think somebody might not be okay with, right. we stop and we talk about it. Sure. My character wants to cut out your character's tongue. Right. Is that okay? Right. 
Yes. That kind of stuff. Um, uh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> that happened between Sean Nittner and I. It was, it was yes, pretty I awesome. Think you, I think you mentioned that in, in episode four, I think, that exact instance. So, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah. Yeah, we had a long discussion beforehand of, I, I want my belief to be that I'm going to cut out your tongue. I'm like, do it. I'll find yeah. a way to put one back. It's yeah. turning one. Like it work. Uh, but what we've really pushed to do is especially when you first start out in the game, we'll make a belief about, you know, what's, what's happening right now, like a short-term belief. We'll make a belief about another person. Sure. Uh, and then we'll make a long-term belief. And we really push um, as players and Sean as the GM to get everyone to, even if we disagree, even if our characters butt heads on small matters, the big picture, we are fighting for the same thing. Right, and that's vital to keep everyone together. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right there. It's you know having that sort of link is you know is the is the most important. But if you're going to go for a game where you want to allow you know, characters to ex- to experience or that is express or or follow some particular um, aspects of their of their character, you need some sort of a unifying thread um, initially, at least to get them moving in the in the same direction. No guarantee there won't be any divergence and crash and burn later on, but at least initially. You know, getting people on the same page is is a pretty important. Uh... Well, and that's where that's where stepping back really helps. Um, when you step back from the game and say, okay, right now we have you know these characters who are fighting for the same thing, and your character who's having trouble tying in. How do we get your character to buy into what we're fighting for? Right. How do we meta game in a way? Yeah. And it's, we've run into that problem. Uh, your character's going this way. All of our characters are going this way. What can we do to convince your character to come with us? Right. And we'll set stakes. We'll make beliefs about that specifically. And, and really try and tie all the characters together. But at the same time, the player has to buy into it. Right. If, if the player's not buying into, no, we do need to all go do the same thing, there's really no point. Yeah. But I think that... Well, hopefully, when you get a game group together that's played for a while, people realise that there is that one aspect of role-playing that's a little bit um, artificial, which is that if everybody doesn't sort of go in the same direction, then the game doesn't work properly, right? So you kind of have to hope that people will, will uh, take that into consideration before they stand behind anything that they're, that they're trying to do, right? Yeah, well, and that's part of that social contract that people talk about. It's kind of something that you have to assume you have to do. Right, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, well, I think the people have probably got a pretty good idea uh, where you're coming from and, and where you're at now. So uh, on with the uh, the real uh, heart of the interview, uh, the Inside the Role Play Studio questions. So what is your favorite book or uh, or supplement? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you play right now, but it's something that's a, you know, a constant joy to you. I, the one system I always love is Dread. I love the Dread book. Um, I love... If Are you familiar with Dread at all? That's the one with the Jenga um, tower, right? Yeah. And for you people at home, the way Dread works is every time you want to do something or you want to commit somebody to something or you know shoot someone, jump a cliff, whatever, you draw a Jenga block. And the rule is if you knock over the tower, even accidentally, which happens almost every time you play, somebody bumps the table, right. your character dies. Right. Whoever knocks over the table loses their character. And I love it for the reason that I'm a huge horror fan. I love gore. I love horror. Um, And like I was saying about World of Darkness, it's not scary. It uses horror tropes, but there's nothing in the mechanic to make it scary. 
Now, Dread, I don't believe that you can make a game that is going to scare people. There's some people who have easier triggers. You know, you can throw in giant spiders and they'll freak out. Right. Somebody like me, you're never going to scare me. You're never going to squick me out. But the one way to do it is to confuse your brain a little bit. So when you have the anticipation and the tension of having to draw the Jango block and everyone's 10 feet away from the table and not breathing yes. as you're reaching in and trying to pull it out, you're scared shitless. Right. You are absolutely terrified that you are about to lose your character and not get the thing that you're pulling to do. Right. And it, it kind of works to... It's not scary, but it kind of triggers that emotion. Sure. Um, the handshaking, the anticipation. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the things that I liked about uh, the idea of Dread. I've only, um, I, I've never played it. I've watched it being played, but I've never, never actually played it. But one of the things that I wasn't sure about because I haven't read the books is if somebody knocks the ta- the thing over and their character dies, is that the end of the game, or do they remake it and then just start again with the people that are still in it? Yep, you remake the tower, uh, and we've had I've had discussions with this about people because some people think that you need to have multiple characters. Um, and that way somebody knocks it. And I'm like, ah, yes and no, because you don't want anyone to be left out of the game. By the same token, you want that character to be important. You want them to think about the hard decision they're making every time they pull a block, about yes. putting their characters at risk. Right. And if you have another character sitting there that they can just pick up when they kill this one, right. that tower is not as important. It takes no. away some of that tension. Right. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, you rebuild the tower, and then depending on how many people have dropped out of the game, you pre-pull a few blocks. Right. So let's say, you know, so many people have dropped out of the game, so you need to pull five blocks before you even restart. Right. Okay, so how long does it take for the first block to fall out? Do people pull out two of the bottom three just to make things really interesting right from the get-go? I do. Right. <laughs> I'm that jerk. Uh, <laughs> like I, <short> games. <laughs> I have a lot of trouble killing people when I right. play Dread, uh, right. or when I run Dread. Right. Some people manage to... and. It, I've seen it where there are multiple characters where the tower is just not as important. Some people manage to get the tower knocked off or knocked over, you know, five, six, seven times in the course of a four to six hour game. Right. So I guess to a degree, it depends upon the game master um, making sure that there are plenty of opportunities for people to to pull blocks. But does um, does that sort of break up the suspense and things. I can imagine that although it's suspenseful to draw a block for the person drawing the block, and it is suspenseful for the people watching the drawing of the block, there's actually nothing going on during the game at that time, and the suspense is all based upon the drawing of the block rather than sort of a developing um, description of a scene, because, you know, you're sitting there for 20, 30 seconds, however long it takes somebody to pull a block, um, and where nothing is happening apart from the pulling off the block. There's enough tension that nobody ever notices the lull. Right. Uh, And kind of how it works is you build up to that point of them pulling the block. And they're taking an action that is going to affect the course of the game. Right. And so, yeah, you're not building a scene at the moment. But by the same token, people are waiting to see if that, um, you know, if somebody does manage to get a gun to shoot the bad guy. Right. Because if that tower falls uh, and they don't get the gun... You know, it's going to change the course of the game. Right, sure. 
Sure. So if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean you think it's badly written or you've got something against the writer. It could just be because it's ra- uh, wronged you in some random way or, or perhaps it's come along at a time in your life when other bad stuff was going on and you always make that association. <laughs> LARPing. I'm going to kill LARPing. <laughs> Laughing? Okay. That's just a personal bias. Um, <sighs> okay. You're not I, allowed to kill LARPing if you like, like Mind's Eye Theater <laughs> LARPing or just LARPing in general? Just LARPing in general. I, I think I'm just not a comfortable enough person to handle the intimacy and kind of embracing of the entire character that is LARPing. But it, one, if I had to kill one role-playing system... Uh, you can kill you can kill LARPing because I've got some questions for, about you. With, for killing. The first, yeah. My first question is, but being as you have a background in, in theatre, why is LARPing uh, get the axe? I think theater is a situation where you have a script, uh, your character has emotions, you know what's coming up, you know what's going to happen. It's it's the audience that doesn't. Right. When you're LARPing, you're 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 the character. You know, you're you're making the story. By the same token, you're the audience. Yes. Yep. You you don't know what's happening. Only the LARP masters know LARP what's master. going on. <laughs> Is that what they're called, LARP masters? I don't know. <laughs> Sounded good at it the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they call them. Uh, I don't do it enough. But yeah, they're the only ones. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, I hate magic too, and it's because somebody knows something that I don't. Right. Somebody is going to trick me. Right. Um, and I just I'm never comfortable when I LARP. So, what's the line between LARPing and role-playing? I, I think stepping back and being meta. Um, you know, I can look down at my character and see the... Uh, I, can, I can see my stats. I can see my dice. When you're LARPing, like, I think you have a character. I don't know. I haven't done it too much. Uh but by the same token, the same jokes that I crack during game, the same stepping out of character to make a lewd remark or make fun of somebody. I, I've never gotten the feeling that that's as okay during a LARP. And that's part of the social thing that I like during gaming is I'm, I'm hanging out with my friends. Yes. I want to talk to my friends like friends. I'm not a total immersion kind of player. I like to step back and make jokes and talk to people about things as they come up. Right. And you know, it's just, it's not there in LARPing and I get too tense when right. I LARP. Right. Yeah. I would think that, uh, I think that's probably, you know, the perfect description. Some people I've heard just laughing is as soon as you stand up, you've you've begun laughing. But um, if you uh, are <laughs> looking at it from from that perspective, um, I see what you mean because in in role playing, you're hanging out with your friends. You've got that um, the scene where like it might be high energy and like you might be right into it. And you're doing all the things that larpers do aside from, as I say, standing up. But <laughs> You know, you and then that that scene is finished, and then you've got a time for meta. This I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Do you want this? What about that? And then you're like, say, you're joking with your friends again, right? And it's and it's a nice, at least in my opinion, if you've got four hours where you're just like on the whole time, um, where you are acting the whole time, but you're reacting a lot of in a lot of respect as well. Then, and there is no line between, um, you know, like. You are your character. That's it. There's no space for for being Kristen or being mm. Daniel. You know, you are you know Zagoth or or whatever your <laughs> Sir Kristen, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> for, exa- <laughs> for example, um, then you have um, the, yeah. Then there's that can be. 
I would imagine that would be exhausting and, and stressful. Um, and I, I've been in games. Yeah, I've been in games that are really, really intense and really you just stay on the entire time. Uh, Sean Dentner's, uh, what does he call it? Apocalypse Galactica. Right. I played in his uh, 33 game, which is the ship that disappears in the very first episode and then jumps back on and they blow it up. Right. Uh, and we played the time that the ship was out of sight. Right. So it was this entire, you know, we know the ship is going to get blown up. We know we're all going to die. And I took the captain role. So I was on the entire time. I was giving commands, you know, really immersed in this game. By the same token, I had coffee and a cookie. Right, yeah. yeah. And I was sitting there with, you know, Karen 12s and my husband and a bunch of other friends. And Sean was running it. And I could get up and go to the bathroom if I wanted. Sure, yeah. Or we'd take a break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you say, I mean, I was exhausted on, by the end of it, but yeah, but exhilarated too, right? Like it was just a, yeah. it was just a great session. But if you are inhabiting that, uh, inhabiting that character completely for that for that whole time, you can't, you know, you say get up and go to the bathroom or take a bite of your cookie or take a drink or whatever it might happen to be. Then you don't. Yeah, I mean, I can see why for some people that that's not it. And I've also heard people say that um, Minds Eye Theater players, like back when it was really big, uh, right into Vampire. Um, you know, that was, they did that more than real life, you know, like just playing their character the whole, the whole time. And yeah, I just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with inhabiting another persona and, and more power to you, to uh, any LARPers that are, that are listening. But for me, I think that not having that time available to, um, or at least not having to stay in character that whole time, I would find uh, exhausting. But if there's any LARPers out there that want to, um, come on the show and want to talk about why Chris and I are wrong because I, I would confess to have only done LARPing maybe twice um, in my life. And I think, mm-hmm. Kristen, you have limited exposure to LARPing or none whatsoever. Yeah, like three or four times. And, and I want to say before we go any farther, um, the, the show that we're going to start, Bad Wrong Fun, mm-hmm. the entire title is, is the joke. Yes. Like, because I... I don't like LARPing myself. I'm not comfortable doing it. It's very stressful for me. It's not relaxing. I'm not just hanging out with my friends and yes. doing this other thing. Right. Um, by the same token, I, it, I want people to play what they want. I want people to play the fun thing and the exciting thing. Um, and that's kind of why we titled the episode like that. Because I've heard a lot of gaming podcasts, and I still used to listen to them, that were like, no, this game is wrong and it's bad here's why and if you're enjoying playing it you're wrong yes and we always call the bad wrong fun the bad wrong fun argument yes um shadowrun i don't play shadowrun anymore because i hate the combat i cannot sit through another shadowrun combat in my life right there's plenty of people who can play it and they have fun and that's great for them yes like I'm happy they found a game they like. Yeah, that um, that was something that I brought up in uh, episode 14 with Satine as well. This idea of role playing snobbery, you know, like where you've got, you know, you you like this game, but that's wrong because you know by now you should be playing this game. You know, you need mm-hmm. to you need to start playing you know game X because you know like it that's kid stuff and you want to get to this immersive experience or that type of experience. And at the end of the day, it's just like you say the reason that at least I'm attracted to to role playing is I get to hang out with my friends and make dumb jokes and 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 have a bit of fun but this and, and who am I to be the arbiter of what 
somebody does and doesn't find enjoyable. Some people love watching um, Grey's Anatomy, for example. My wife is is one of them. And I I've got no <laughs> I've got no patience for it at all. Like movies like um, what is it Hall Pass and stuff like that, where I'm just like I can see exactly where this is going. I know all the dumb jokes that you're going to make, and I'm not interested in in this at all but it made plenty of money so some people must be enjoying it and who am I to say that they're wrong I mean they are wrong but you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah my husband watches wire foo movies all the time like like the kung fu wire foo movies and I'm just like all right it's a bunch of dudes flying through the air again like you sit there and enjoy this and I'm just gonna go over here and do something else yeah there's this and I think yeah I can't wait to hear the uh the, the podcast because um yeah there's a lot of those a lot of people still that that need to realize that um and i'm gonna get a bump on my on my high horse here but nobody's <laughs> paying nobody's paying my bills so um that need to realize that the hobby is so small as it is we can't afford to be alienating each other mm-hmm. we've got to accept people you like that cool you're into role playing that's great you understand where i'm coming from and if we get into a fight with somebody you're going to be on my side if we're arguing about role-playing, despite the fact we play different games. And I think that that sense of camaraderie and allowing people to like what they like is is, is important. But then we're well, and Go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's just uh, not not to, to name drop or anything. I have a friend, uh, Stephen Blackmore. He's a writer. I don't know if he's a gamer at all. Right. Um, if you interact with me on Twitter at all, I'll retweet some of his stuff. But he made this blog post a while ago that was about how... What was it? I think geek pride needs to die. And his point wasn't that it was wrong to be proud of being a geek. It's that this exclusivity of, I play this console game, and this is the right console game to be playing. And if you're over there playing a button masher, you shouldn't be having fun. But he wanted to see people coming forward and being passionate about what they do love. Right. Instead of putting other people down for not loving yeah. the same thing. Yeah. I personally don't like D&D. I understand why people like it. I understand how it could be an absolutely fun game. But if I ever talk about role-playing games, I'm going to sell people on Burning Wheel. Yes. Because I absolutely have a passion for it, and right. that's what I want to talk about. I right. don't want to hate on LARPing and D&D and Shadowrun. I, I want to talk about this really cool thing that I do. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I'm 100% with you there. I, I think the people... It's great to be passionate, but there's no right way to have fun. You know, that's something people need to appreciate. And at the same time, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, as I've said before, is not really my game. I, I like a lot of things about it, but I've never really played one that's played in a game that, that's captured my imagination. Maybe that's that's on the horizon somewhere. And I know that a lot of people will say, well, any game can be fun because of the way that you run it and so on and so forth. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely, they don't, I can't put any question marks against that at all. Um, it is the way that, that you run it, but there's something about the setting and something about the rules and, and so forth that can be more or less fun to, to somebody. But, you know, at the end of the day, come on, can't we all just be friends? Let's all just love role-playing and, and uh, that stuff. And just because people have hated on us for what we like doesn't mean we have to try and find some some hate, something to hate somebody else about, right? That's almost mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And um yeah, just just uh, be everybody. Be nice to each other. That's that's my dream. Everybody can. <laughs> yeah, like Will Wheaton says, don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have heard somebody else say that as well. Um, so, <laughs> so um, are there any games or supplements you're particularly looking forward to? I, 
God, it has been such a whirlwind last few years that I have no idea what's coming out, to be honest. Uh, the only thing I know about and I'm stoked for, because I'm totally a Loot Crane fanboy, uh, I am excited for the Dark Crystal RPG that he is doing. And he normally does, uh, Burning Wheel Headquarters normally has a Summer Secret Surprise where they release a supplement or a new game or something like that. Um, he is so busy working on these new games that they're not doing it this year for the first year, and I don't know how many years. Right. But he is doing a Dark Crystal RPG. Right, that's the Dark Crystal and puppet I, movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the puppet movie. Sorry to sorry to reduce it there, to, 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 to like that, but that's really the all I, I knew exactly what you were talking about when all you right. said that. So yeah, yeah, he that that media is what he is making into a game. Yeah, well, I'm I'm uh, I'm now also uh, looking forward to that. I was fortunate enough to play in a Burning Empires game that he ran at uh, at Origins a couple of uh, years ago, and he's uh, he's a pretty switched on guy. So I can't wait to see how that uh, how that turns out. So if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? I, I'd like to be altruistic and say GM, but I would be a player. Um, it, like I said, I'm, I'm busy a lot, uh, and the pressure of coming up with stuff for people to do, or you know, in Burning Wheel, burning the characters that they're going to interact with, making things interesting, doing the prep. I just a lot of times I don't have the energy to do it um, or the time. <laughs> right, and it's. One of the things that I, I've mentioned previously is that um, it's like being a GM or a storyteller or whatever the the name might happen to be for any given system. You know, it's something that I think, at least, is that people something that people can do and want to do or or find really difficult and time consuming. And I think that um, there's nothing wrong with putting a lot of preparation in. But somebody who doesn't really feel comfortable with GMing is likely to put in much more preparation than, than somebody who's not. And so that can make the whole task even more daunting than it previously was. So I think that people, um, for the most part at least, I've discovered people sort of fit into one camp or the other. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons for not, you know, for not choosing to be a GM, but none of them are... are um, there are none of them that are better or, or worse than others, but I, I firmly believe that either you are or, or you aren't. And if you're trying to and you're not really, then it's going to take a lot of work. And I take my hat off to you for uh, for giving it a go. I know that I've struggled with with like pay, playing the piano. Just I just could not learn how to play the piano. I tried to teach myself guitar, no problem. Piano, just I mean theoretically, it should be the same sort of idea, but I, I just can't. And it's not fun to do. Like I like the idea of playing it, but it's just not fun to uh, to put the time in. And I think that applies to um, a lot of things, but especially to to being a GM, either you are or, or, or you aren't. You can try, but it's it's very time consuming and and ultimately can be frustrating, I suppose. Reduce your enjoyment well, of the hobby. And I'm I'm coming from a position where I really, really, really want to GM. I absolutely want to GM, um, mostly because a lot of the people I play with uh, are the people who are always GMing games. They don't get a play, right? And I want to be able to reciprocate that fun. Mm. But I'm still, I'm a very new GM. Uh, Burning Wheel is a little easier, and I think that's what I'm going to hop into next. Right. We're going to take the world that we're currently in and then, you know, do different characters for that world, and I'm going to run that game and let my husband play. Right. Uh, if, if I had to choose right now to play or GM, it would be to play just because I'm busy. Right. But I, I do want to GM. I want to GM so bad. I want to make that, I want to provide people with that fun 
encounter and I want to have them talking about the game that that I ran that I facilitated for them yes. and, and the cool thing that they ran up against in there. Mm. I, I want to give people that experience. Yeah, that's one of the things that I find difficult as a GM sometimes. Not so much now because I'm with a pretty stable group and we tend to, to share it around. But I know that in the past, um, you know, you go, sometimes you go along and I call them baby birds. You know, they're, they're people that come to play the game, but they just hold their mouths open and say, you know, pour the fun in now. You're like, I'm here, entertain me, give me the fun. And they'll they do almost no preparation or thinking about their character and the, and the downtime. Um, they almost want you to tell them what the right thing to do is, all that that type of stuff and and while in my book i say you know it's possible you may get people coming on to game because they just want something to do and they're all they're there with their girlfriend or whatever it might happen to be they're going on they're making up the numbers and that's fine but somebody who's really into uh who likes the idea of role playing but doesn't want to do any work you know that's the baby bird and you know if you're a baby bird out there just do a little something do a little bit of character background or something like that and appreciate that putting a game although gms have fun putting games together there is a certain amount of of pressure to make sure that you have have fun so at least you know bring the snacks or whatever it used to be that um when i when i was um a little younger it used to be if you're um if you're running the game you don't have to bring the snacks or you don't have to you don't have to chip in for the pizza you know like you're you've already done the work and then people come and that that worked out fine too then then uh i got to be baby bird because people would feed me but um but yeah. <laughs> well and i've i've run into a funny problem as far as jamming goes because sean nittner uh my husband sean and then a select few other people um when i write a game and test it they're my test group they're the people that i throw my game at they're all fantastic role players um they get in there and they just take control of the game and they take off and I just give them answers as they ask. And it's it's fantastic and it's that exhilarating jamming feeling yes. of they're digging this, they're into this, they're doing things, this is great, this is exciting. And then I will take that scenario to a con yes. and have the players, like there's a cricket in the That's background right. yeah, yeah. stripping like, at it. It's worked so well in the past and now it's, <laughs> and now it's not working at all, which is going to play totally into the last question here. But... but um, Skipping ahead a little bit, I suppose. I think that you know that's absolutely it. The players are the game. You know, you've you've got to set up a framework, but you need players to be invested in what it is that you're doing. And if they're not, then like you say, you've got the cricket situation, and you it's just so. Not only are you bringing the game, you're also having to bring the NPCs, you're having to bring the energy, bring the excitement. And as a player, the very least you can do is is bring some of that. And it sounds like you're lucky to have such a great group of uh people that are investing in their, their characters when they're when they're there yeah i really am we really have a group of very aggressive players like i said sean denner tried to cut out my tongue in a session <laughs> like that's how hard we go at each other right uh no matter what our characters are no matter the situation like we're always fighting for the same thing yes but just butting heads yeah. because that's what's interesting yeah or you know causing as much trouble and i got I got to tell uh, all you people listening, if you wind up in a con game with Sean Ninner, he is the most sadistic, uh, or not sadistic, masochistic player 
that you will ever encounter. He will just throw his character at stuff and be like, I wonder if he'll live through this. Yeah, that's right. And it's fantastic to play with because you don't have to sit there and be like, okay, there's trouble coming. Like, are you guys going to do something? Yeah, yeah. And he's he's a fantastic gamer. I love playing with Sean. Yeah, that was was definitely the highlight for for me of of one of the, the games that I ran at, I think it was Origins on a Gen Con this year I can't remember it's a bit of a blur but anyway Sean that's how I originally met Sean it's him and he and Karen um, and Keely Taylor who that was they were episode 2, 3 and 4 respectively um, were were in the game and yeah one of my best role playing yeah it was one of my best role playing experiences because you know I was spinning the tail I'd run, I'd run the game before for other people but you know just seeing um Sean, like sitting forward in his chair and sort of hanging on everything that you're saying, really validates you know the the job that you're doing. But the fact that he's so and and all three of them were really were so prepared to let kind of let the story go in some places and and follow the story in other places and just having an, uh, being aware that you know it's a con game, so we can't go in all these different areas. So we're going to let that go and we're going to let the the story progress. But every chance we get, we're going to fill it in with some some great role playing moments. And and yeah, absolutely, you know, having yeah. having players invested and uh, you know bringing their all to a character even if they just you know see it for the first time two minutes before you know that's that's what makes the game great so yeah you're lucky if you get Sean and I think probably um, you shouldn't maybe be too attached to your character if you get Sean as a GM in a game because what he likes to do in the game is what he likes to see his players do in the game so don't don't hold back you know you've you're in for a, for a great ride don't be too precious with them um, so when you are a GM, and you've descri- described this a little bit already, but when you're a GM, what sort of preparation do you do? How do you prepare for a game? I way over-prepare. I absolutely way over-prepare, especially for the kinds of games that I run. Um, I don't run stuff with too heavy a system, right. uh, mostly because I, ha- I have a terrible memory. I'm crazy busy, yes. and I'm just intimidated as hell by them. And I don't know if it's because I'm a new GM or if that's just in my nature. So I run really light system games. Uh, I've ran a penny for your thoughts, which is no prep. Um, a few other lower, no prep games. Right. Uh, I ran an octane way over prepared for it. Uh, really kind of didn't groove with the game. Right. Um, and then my drug games, I always write out just these really long scenarios and trying to account for every possible thing. And then every time we sit down to play, like the players go and they just do something else entirely. And I just right. make it up as I go. Like <laughs> yeah, all the notes just go out. Yeah, the window. That's right. Yeah. You've got this, this game prepared. Um, okay, now they're going to go left here and then this is where all the story is going to happen. They're going to go right straight away. And you're like, <laughs> I write oh, dungeon crawls gonna... for games that do not support dungeon crawls. <laughs> that is my failing as a GM right now. Yeah, that, that's they're getting the, uh, like just figuring the game is on rails. You know, they're going to want to do this and they're going to want to do that and they just never, they just never do. Uh, <laughs> so um, what's the perfect number to role play, excluding the GM? Like how many players do you want Doing a lot of Burning Will and stuff, I, I like four. I really like four. Um, if I were to run a World of Darkness, I'd probably look bigger at five or six. Right. If you get past, if you get anywhere more than that, um, it gets a little little too hectic. It gets a little hard for everyone to get screen time. You get people yes. withdrawing and turtling and not engaging as much because they're not as loud. I've had that problem in, problem in games before where there's been a bunch of loud people and I'm like, I can't over yell the people around me so I can't do anything right yeah. now. Uh, if you get less than that, it gets a little three's not bad. 
we've gained with three. Three is fine. It's enough. There's enough going on to bounce off of people. Uh, I don't know if I'd game with two. Yeah, that's something that uh, I've talked about before but I think that as soon as you go from there being three players to being two players you need to do it's about it strikes me that you are on three or four times more um, in the session than you are if you are running for just if you're running for three or more because without that third person you get a lot more intimacy and I have run buddy cop games before and that's great if you've got say a you know a Sean Nittner type mm-hmm. person in your game that's going to really you know tell the story with you they're putting in a third of the of the effort but if you are playing with a couple of people that are not maybe ready for that or are not able to you know they're more like waiting for the fun to happen then that exponentially grows the amount of work that you need to do having that triangle is really where you're going to get a lot of um stuff happening in your game that's not on your piece of paper. You know, you're going to get that character development. You're going to get that um, that tension between the players. You're not going to get when there's just two. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, I'm on the same page. Depending on the type of game, if you've got a character-driven game, you have to have time for the characters to develop. And if you're going to have time for the characters to develop, either you've got to have a long session or you have to have uh, few enough people for them all to get that face time that you're talking about. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and with two, um, you run into the problem. We were talking about this the other night. I think it's on the the first episode of Bad Wrong Fun that's going to come out. Is that with two people, things escalate. Like, there's there's never any letdown. There's never any you know step back and breathe kind of moment. Right. Like it is. It is these two characters the entire way, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, and it's just exhausting. Yeah. Even for a player like Sean, or if Sean or, Sean and I were in a game like that. Um, I would just be wiped out by the end of the game, yeah, and and probably not really into it because I would be on so much yes. that I would just it it'd kill me. I'd be so tired, and yeah. you need that you need that step back. You need that. I mean, Shakespeare wrote it in. Shakespeare had the com- the comedic relief in yes. between all the tension. It was right. always there because it's vital for storytelling. Right. Yeah, talking about uh, comedic. Um tension release right now and something completely unrelated uh, for anybody that wants to watch a, a Shakespearean dramatization a comedy watch the 12th night if Ben Kingsley as I forget exactly the name of the character but if you get a chance to watch that and you want to know what um, what comedic uh, tension um, sort of tension breaking stuff is then uh, watch them in the 12th night it's it's brilliant but um, but yeah I'm, I'm with you absolutely on that you know you're just as a even as a player as a gm you know, you're on the whole time it's very 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 intense and uh that's not to say that, that you're dealing with heavy subject material or anything like that but the game just moves so much faster because people a lot of role playing i mean if you think about the games probably you'll you'll um find in hindsight that a lot of role playing is arguing about how you're going to do something and in mm-hmm. when you've only got two people you don't really get a conversation. They say, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. And you don't have that tiebreaker person. So they'll just decide on what it is that they're going to do. And then they're off again. And a lot of, I know that for my role playing sessions, at least a lot of the time is spent figuring out plans on, on how to do stuff. And you don't, when you've got two people, it's just, you know, it's this, it's this. Okay. We're going to do it like this. That's it. Yeah. Right. And well, and Burning Will, Burning Will has mechanics to get people to agree on exactly what you're going to do. Um, like I said, if you were to drop Sean and I in that situation, 
the entire game would just be arguments between us right. or us fighting or something like like the the plot wouldn't even happen right that would just be a side note to us arguing about right. how it's going to be done right yeah yeah that's uh it, that's part of the fun but like you say you know when you don't have that relief valve that third person you know, that comedic stuff then it's just it's too much right too much for mm-hmm. four hours at a time or at least for any more than one session at a time so uh, how often do you role play and for how long I'd like it to be more often. Uh, we do our Wednesday night game, which is the one that we broadcast. Um, the only issue is that we're all in Northern California, and then our other player is in Florida. So we right. start um, at 7.30, and he has to go to bed by 10. Right. Which, ideally, for Burning Wheel, if you have about a four-hour session, yes. that that's pretty spot on. Right. When we used to do Shadowrun, we game for eight to ten hours if we could squeeze it in because that's how long it took to do something that's how long it took to do your mission and gather everything and do you know the four-hour combat yes and i don't yeah i don't play that game anymore (laughs) but yeah we we try and squeeze in especially for having an in-person at the table game you know about four hours right yeah i think and is that actual play time or is that like you guys get together at six and everybody leaves at 10 or do you guys get together at five thirty, chat about your day about your weekend or that sort of social aspect of role playing we were talking about and then a little bit of um sort of chatting afterwards as well or do you guys like get together at six finish at 10 and however much role playing happens in between the other stuff is how much you do no when we used to do a lot more um in-person gaming and kind of what happened was we had a really awesome game group uh in chico where we used to live and then we moved down here. And yeah, there's people, but Sacramento is kind of a widespread area. So everyone that we want to game with is 30, 40 minutes away, an hour away. And it's just too hard with everyone's schedules to get together. So we do it on Hangout. Um, when when we actually do it in person, you know, people people will show up at 5 and we'll, we'll bullshit and eat and hang out. And then we'll sit down, you know, game really hard and then just kind of hang out afterward. Right. Until people got to go. With the Hangout game, it's a little different just because the the time that we have to game is so short. Right. It's just too short. Yes, so. yeah, two and a half is not a lot, yeah. Yeah, we gotta we gotta hop in, do beliefs, and get going. Right. So what's... Uh, if you have any tips for people, because I know that... Um, a lot of people now are starting to embrace this idea of playing, you know, Skype or or Google Hangouts uh, for their games. Do you have any tips for um, people that are that uh, maybe want to do one? Like, what's the ideal number of players, or any technical type stuff that you learned about the hard way, or only over time? Well, oh, I'm going to be in trouble for saying this. Um, use Google Hangouts. <laughs> It is the least buggy way we have found to game. Right. Use Google Hangouts with extras. Right. Um, well, let me think. What else has gone on? Uh, when you do it in Google Hangouts, you can drop in your maps. Um, we keep all our session notes in there. We keep our. We can drop our characters in there that everyone can see. Right. Um, yeah, we we used Inferno a little bit. We've used Skype, and it's just not as reliable and functional for that. Right. As Hangouts are. Right. Do you have audio only or video also? We've done both. Um, we always have audio and video just because we have the setup for it. Right. We ran 
some kind of intro sessions to Burning Will, um, in which Sean and I, my husband Sean and I, were the only ones with video. Everyone else just had their icon and audio, which works well enough. But we ran into the other night, Sean Nittner lost his video. Right. And when you have a player who's really expressive and gets really into what's going on and when they're yelling at you you know they're glaring at you and they're pointing and gesticulating and it's fantastic to have video i highly recommend it and then it adds that kind of more that personal connection a little bit because you can see people's expressions and their reactions and i really like I, I would prefer it with video all the time yeah. if I had my way. <laughs> yeah, and for anybody that's considering getting into podcasts, I find the, the same thing myself. If I can actually see the person that I'm talking to, it's much you – know, you don't really think about it, but so much of the conversation happens that you can't see. And um, – well, yeah, no, sorry. So much of the conversation happens that you don't hear. Right, by being able to read people's faces and watch their body language and all that type of stuff. And even though there's a little bit, for me at least, a little bit of a technical, there's like the sound is not quite so good, I think that generally speaking the interviews go much better when you've actually got video going at the, uh, going at the same time. So there's a, a couple of tips for uh, online type stuff, whether you're interviewing or whether you're, whether you're playing for sure. Um, so uh, should males play females? And I don't mean this necessarily um, like... Uh, should they be allowed to? That's that's one part of it. The other part is, you know, like should people um, be, you know, should people play things that are that are not themselves? Like is is role playing? Um, like we were talking before about how people start with Dungeons and Dragons often, and then they work their way up, so to speak, or at least in some people's eyes. Whereas you can just stay with Dungeons and Dragons in the first place. But mostly when people start role playing, I think this is probably almost universally true. Although I'm sure that. There are plenty of people that are going to start jumping up and down in a second. But people start off role-playing in the third person. My character does this. He does that. She does this. He does that. And so forth. And then maybe goes a little bit into the second person then finally get through to, to role-playing in the first person where everything that you say and do when you're in character is obviously you in character and you put a voice on and you do this or you, and whatever it might happen to be. Now, because you're not LARPing, there is, a, there is a necessity to break that wall from time to time. But for the most part, whenever you're talking, you're speaking in character, using intonation and all that sort of thing. Um... And do and so relating that idea to to the question I'm asking right now is uh, is it um, first of all should guys play girls and I, and and I'm sort of a little bit here talking about you know some guys will play girls just to be saucy and have sex to to uh, use a phrase that Satine used in, in episode 14 but um, and then you know should people really try to to push themselves in, in role playing to to play different things. Okay, as far as uh, whether or not guys should play female characters, yes, <laughs> without question. You don't even have to qualify it because, it, to me, if you know, I if I felt that guys shouldn't play female characters, uh, I would be in the wrong for the entire like litany of male characters that I've played. Sure, and I've never I've never approached playing a character of the opposite sex with. Oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, play a guy and go around and hit on all the women and do this. I'm no, I, outside freely. Yeah, I I want to pee on a tree. Right. Like yeah. that's <laughs> no. It has been that is the character that is cool to me in this story in this setting. Yes. That is the thing that I want to do. Right. Um, and it's never been about playing a male or female character. It's playing the character that is cool to you. Sure. And you know, if playing 
the the priestess or you know something like that is is interesting and that's what's going to really bring you into the game do it by all means do it i i love you know hopping into the guy character role because you know if they're going to go out and be a scrapper and this and that not that women can't but you get what i'm saying that is the character at the moment that i'm interested in um as, as far as people pushing themselves to play things out of their comfort zone, it, it's always good to press yourself, I feel. It's always good to kind of challenge yourself. But by the same token, do what you're comfortable with. Sure. Now, I want to add in the caveat of I would be absolutely just put out, annoyed. I would probably not game with somebody if they were like, you know what, yeah, I'm going to play the female character and she's wearing like, you know, giant boobs and walks around just, you know, sticking them in people's faces and, you know, this over-sexualized kind of... But at that point, you're violating that social contract again. Um, I don't think it's... um, I don't think it's cool to do that to the other players because essentially that's what you're doing. You're forcing them to be comfortable with something that I, I just wouldn't be down with somebody doing that in one of my games. By the same token, when I play guy characters, I I can't go out and womanize. I absolutely can't do it. I have a character with a womanizer trait. I cannot convince myself to go out and womanize. I just it's just not something I'm comfortable with. It's not something the other players would be comfortable with dealing with. So it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely into social contract territory there. Ultimately what we're talking about is, you know, Play whatever you want, but keep in mind that you're not the only one there, and it needs to be it needs to be fun and, and not uncomfortable for other people that are at the table. So you know, I mean, I'm all for people playing whatever they want to play. But one of the things that came up in connection with that, and, and um, was you know, if you're going to play a uh, a girl, um, then what is it about playing a girl that makes it different to playing a guy? You know, if you are a guy, and in order to get something else out of playing a girl, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about maybe not a situation where you're playing a geisha, where it requires you to, to be a girl in order to be able to play this role, so you know there's, it's not negotiable. But if you're going to play a female fighter as opposed to a male fighter, let's just say, for example, what particularly about that are you looking to explore? So you know, you're going to play a girl, so choosing to play a girl means you're going to play it differently to playing a guy because if you're not then you're just playing a character and it's irrelevant what the what the gender is but if you want to go that extra mile and you want to you want to play a girl in order to get that authentic being a girl experience does it require either a very empathic gm or or um or does it require a female gm to actually get you know the authentic experience of playing a female Oh, that's hard for me because, like I said, I never set out with a guy character um, with the aim of getting, you know, the the guy character experience. But I also come from games where you build up your characters. You start at the very beginning and then you create, you know. So, yeah, in the beginning, you know if your character is male and the life paths are going to show... show the, the timeline and the history of that character male or female you know whether they were a governess or a lord or and that's just kind of how burning will handles it um it's a hard one because i don't really know what somebody would be looking to get out of as the female experience um i i've let me think on this for just a second um you know i've i've had 
the female gun bunny. I've had the, you know, the male just slugger. Um, I'm trying to think about what makes them different other than the fact that they are male and female and they can do different, you know, different things. Um, Yeah, that's a. I might. I might not have an answer for that. <laughs> well, in I that guess, case, can I kind of come at it from a different angle? Then, do you believe yeah. that there's catharsis available in role playing? Believe that there's what catharsis? Like, can you can you work through something in role playing, or can you can you experience something authentic in a role playing game? Although you're not actually, you know, like a fighter or a magic user, or what it might happen to be, but some of the experiences that your character goes through are analogous enough with things in your real life that, that there's actually catharsis available from doing that? I, I'm sure that there can be. Um, I've never experienced it. You know, there's there, there's what I do in gaming. There's what I do in life. Um, I don't role play violent characters because I want to be violent or if that's kind of what you're getting at there. Sure, yeah, um, like if you're from a, in a, um, like, Let's take an extreme example, and hopefully it doesn't apply to any listeners, although sadly it probably does. Um, people who have been abused physically or sexually mm-hmm. and are in situations where they don't have very much control and where you know, that sort of thing is used against them for the purposes of um, you know, for subjugation. And so, you know, they come to role-playing and they've got a lot of anger and a lot of feelings of, of powerlessness and they play a, a super powerful character that goes around beating people up and you know, like, you know, taking the liberty or whatever it might might happen to be. Now, for the most part, people probably won't, um, A, they won't play it so radically that people would notice, and it would probably, if they did, then people would uh, would probably have, have say something to them. But, like, are working through things, uh, through their characters, even in, in a subtle way, and, like, um, you know, whether they can gain some, they can gain some personal growth from role-playing that, that happens to their character, but they can take it to real life. I like the thought that people can. I mean, I've, I've never been in that position, so it's hard for me to speak on that. But I know that people have made entire games based on, you know, what they've gone through. Mm. And um, I believe, was it, I'm trying to think of who did it, but somebody made one called, um, was it Silence Makes Me a Victim? And I, I never... Jen Dixon was was talking, I think, about the game. Yours. I don't recall the mm-hmm. name either. I wasn't familiar with it, but I think it was Jen um, that was talking about um, was talking about that. Yeah, but yeah, where it's like a really, you know, like it's a one on one type, almost a therapy type situation. And I was, and the way she was describing it, I thought, wow, I think I've got a new game that I'd like to <laughs> to cause to cease <laughs> to exist because not only does that sound like dangerous in the hands of of an unqualified. Uh, role player but it also sounds like really not fun well and i'll i'll give out my email address probably at the end so that you can send me all the hate mail you want i don't want to be involved in it no. uh, because when i when i sit down and when i game i want to be relaxed and be hanging out with my friends i at the at the risk of sounding callous i i don't want to be somebody's psychiatrist i don't want to be there to help them work through their issues. Like if they've had a rough week and they just want to go and kill kobolds, cool. Like I can go and do that. Uh, If they are, you know, working through something deeper and darker than that. Mm. I don't know if at the table, um, unless that is open and okay with all the players is really the place for that. 
I don't think you get too many people that would uh, disagree with that. And it's interesting you should use kobolds as the example there because I think a couple of other times people have brought up kobolds as the punching bag. I guess that's (laughs) when you're at the bottom of the totem pole in Dungeons & Dragons and everybody wants to kick the shit out of you. That's all I did in Dungeons & Dragons. Like the one time I played, the few sessions we did, all we did was stab kobolds and I was like, let's capture that one and interview it. And people were like, are you stupid? (laughs) Who does that? You don't interview kobolds. You can't interrogate them. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. There are only, and I was the other day, I'm not sure who it was I was talking with about it, but you know, generally speaking, there are only two types of NPCs in the game ones you want to kill and ones that you want to uh, interview. And and somebody said, well, you know, depending on the type of players, you may find somebody who's, you know, wants to, uh, wants to bone them as well. But, the, but, <laughs> but that's the problem with it with a kobold, right? There's really only one thing you can do with a kobold, and that's, you know, just. Use them as a way to check how, how sharp your sword is. So, yeah, don't don't play a kobold. Um, so, do you or uh, or should GMs fudge dice rolls? No, no, unequivocally no. Abs- absolutely not. It is uh, it's lying to your players, and it is not trusting your players to have brought their big boy pants to the game. Yeah. You know, maybe the story is going to go a different way if you rolled really well. And yeah, maybe you might have killed one of your PCs off. Um, it, you should be able to handle that. And your story should not be so set in stone that a dice roll will just ruin everything. Right. Um, we saw that at um, Sean Dentner's Con, Big Bad Con. Um, one of the big bad GM, like it was an iron GM competition kind of tailored to his convention. Sure. One of the GMs was fudging dice rolls in fate. Right. <laughs> and, and he was like, Oh, well I don't, you know, I didn't want them to get that beat up. Right. I'm like, it's, I, we were all just so blown away that nobody said anything. Right. I think Lenny wanted to yell at the guy, yeah, yeah. but kind of held it in, which was surprising. <laughs> That's the most. Yeah, that's. I'm. I'm dumb. In that story, it's not the the, uh, the fudging dice rolls and fate that I'm dumbfounded about. It's the fact that Lenny didn't yell. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he yelled the rest of the competition, but he didn't yell at this guy. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's the key. If, Len, if Lenny's not yelling about something, he really is annoyed about it. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know him uh, aside from the interview that we that I I did with him um, a few weeks ago, but. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think he's short of an opinion in most in, my, in most lines, and he's very considered as well. So, yeah, that um, yeah, I think fudging and, and fate is kind of anathema to the whole whole idea. I think that um, having a uh, having a system that's and a story that's sufficiently robust to handle anything that that you throw at it is, is definitely valuable. But um, one of the things that I do say in my my book is that um, you. And this was, and I, one of the first pieces of feedback I had about it was, um, you know, like I can't get behind you saying that you should you should fudge roles. But the the context of it was when you have somebody that's new to role playing, and 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 the, for the most part, I think people are fortunate enough to have a seed player when they start out. Somebody that's actually played for knows what the story is about. You know, like knows what it's all about. You know, they can they they know you can learn from them what it is to to play. But if you're brand new to it, this idea of um, Role playing, we discussed it before, is so alien. The closest people can get to it is maybe like a board game, like say, for example, um, Talisman, or, or something like that. And the example I, I give is, you know, like don't and, and don't feel like you know the rules are what the 
what it's all about. The ultimate goal is for everybody to to have fun. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that experience, but you're going to you know, you're going to save, slavishly go, like you're going to roll for everything and you slavishly stick with the dice, you run on the risk of losing your, your players. Because if you've got, first of all, if you've got people that are not familiar with role-playing in the first place and you've got somebody that's not familiar with running the game in the first place, it's a very difficult concept to, um, to sell to people, to get them to actually appreciate what's going on. So in my book, I say, like, if you're, when you're starting out, you know, you should you should think about whatever's going to make people have the most fun because that's ultimately what you're there for. Um, I should have perhaps qualified it further by saying, and when you get you know further along with your role-playing career, you'll find that it's that it's not important to do. But within the game, the system that I developed, um, you know, there is there's reward for failing, and there's there's not really any such thing as hit points. So players don't just get splattered straight away. It's all got to be meaningful in the context of the story. But um, going along with that, and we, Sean and I were discussing it in episode four, and I've discussed it subsequently. Um, if you're going to fudge a role, then you've got an idea of the way the story is going to go anyway. In which case, maybe there's no role required at all. You know, you if you want it to go a certain way, don't roll. Yeah, if you wanted that character to succeed so badly that you will lie to them about the dice that you rolled, why are you rolling? Mm, yeah. it, it's it's the say yes or roll the dice kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and and I can mostly speak on Burning Will um, because that's what we play all the time. Sure. Failure is never the end. No. Failure adds complications. Uh, it makes the story cooler because it's like, okay, I'm going to roll to find this guy. Mm. Well, you didn't find this guy, but you ran into an old like grade school enemy who wants to stab you in the face. Right. Like, okay, go deal with that. Yes. Um, and yeah, if you're if you're in a situation where a role is going to um, end a character or be just a big brick wall in the story, either you shouldn't be rolling. Or it has to really, really matter. Yes. Like, if it's that serious that you have to lie about the dice that you rolled, that player needs to know the stakes. They need to know that, oh, if my dice beat your dice, like, your character is losing an arm. Yes. That needs to be out in the open. Mm, yeah, that's yeah, that's another big part of it, too. Is, um, and I sort of discussed it a little bit, um, again, with a number of people, is that uh, with your character, you get a very strong idea of your identity of your character. And sometimes, not exclusively, but sometimes when a character fails, um, the the consequence of the critical failure is not necessarily just that something bad happens, but something bad happens which takes away from the coolness of the character, takes away, like has something happened to them which is not in line with their character. So the example that I've given is that, you know, James Bond is in a gun, gunfight or whatever it might happen to be and he rolls badly and suddenly James Bond fumbles his gun and it goes on the floor, right? I mean, that, James Bond doesn't do that, right? That wouldn't happen. Like, maybe the bullet jams or maybe somebody else does something cool which causes that to happen. But it, by dropping the gun, gun and fumbling it takes away from your idea of what the character is. And I think that, quite apart from any injury that they might suffer... That's a much more serious consequence of failing than you know anything that can happen in the game. So one of the, the mechanics that I have in my game is that if somebody fails or fails badly, then they'll first of all they'll get a plot point. That's not all that, that important, but they then can get an additional plot point, which can help them later on by describing the way that their, player, mm-hmm. their character fails. That way they can own it. 
So first of all, they feel better about it like that. They're telling a part of the story. They're also, but they get to fail in character, and they don't lose some of that cool that their character has in their mind. They can describe it in a way that they retain their character. They get to fail in character, but they do still fail. But something interesting happens as a result. Yeah, well, and I, I like the idea that they get to narrate what is going on because it, it makes them own the failure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They, you know, they've embraced it, they've described it, and it becomes cool purely because they got to do it. They got to tell you how they failed. Yeah. One cool thing that I really, really like about Burning Will is that before you even roll, you know what happens if you fail. Fine. Um, we set the stakes ahead of time. I played with some people playing Burning Will who aren't quite as good at that. Right. And it kind of takes away of like, okay, well, you failed the dice. Now here's what happened. Yes. Um, instead... You know, I'm like, well, I'm going to roll to do X thing. Right. Um, for example, I'm going to try and, you know, stab dude. Mm. Uh, the GM will then say, okay, well, if you fail this roll, yes. dude is going to stab you instead. Right. And you are going to take a wound, which we'll figure out later. Sure. At that point, you can walk away. Yes. I mean, unless you're, you know, in the middle mm. of a fight or something. Sure. But I've been in social um, social conflicts where the stakes have been too high, yes. and I have left because yes. I do not like that failure consequence. Yes, right. Yeah, sure. And yeah. I left it on the table and went away from it. Right. And, and yeah, but but that's and that's an informed choice, right? Like you know what's going to happen. The stakes are too high for you for whatever reason it might happen to be. But when something bad happens to somebody, um, and they don't get to own it or there's a chance they're going to fail out of character, you know, I think that the, the stakes are, you know, you, you need to either give them the conditions of failure or you need to let them be the author of their own demise so they can still retain that, that I mean, people like their characters for the most part, right? Apart from mm-hmm. Sean, maybe sometimes he likes to be in a dangerous situation to get them killed. But, um, you know, you, if you're in an ongoing campaign, you want to kind of look at every thing that happens as just a little tiny step you're taking with your character towards their, towards their development. So, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, I think we're on the same page in that one, even though I'm not quite so so strong on not fighting <laughs> roles. But anyway, so um, what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but something you watch and wow, that's so cool, I want to play a game where that sort of thing happens. God. I... <laughs> I love the guild. It's not necessarily role playing. It is uh, MMO, um, but but that's all about like the social aspect of what's going on. Uh, the only real like RPG movie that comes to mind is The Gamers, and yeah. and I love it because they they take this thing that they love and they make a joke of it. Yes. But it's kind of that like hmm. yeah, I see why what we're doing is sort of ridiculous. Sure. But I love it anyway. I love it so much that I can make fun of it. Yes. Um, And it it really is this, I'd say self-deprecating humor, but I don't feel like it is. No. I feel like it's it's done with with love and, you know, yeah, it's silly. I want to share how silly it is with you. I'm still going to do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're sort of they're sort of in jokes, right? They're not just they're not jokes about role players. They're jokes which are funny too. Like the the for me at least, you know, the the critical moment in that film in terms of, you know, illustrating the type of jokes that they're making and showing that we're laughing together rather than laughing at ourselves mm-hmm. um, in, in a bad way is where the, you've got the super strong fighter that goes to lift the gates and he can't 
and he can't do it. <laughs> he and hurts then the himself. Super, and then the super, the super weak guy comes along with a three percent chance of doing it, lifts them, and just puts them out of the way like they like they weigh nothing. That's the that's the type of joke that I think that that is particularly strong in that film. You know, it's not a well. And there, there's two moments that pop into my head that I can always relate to, and it's the one where they're in the tavern, and you know their enemies there, and there's this moment where they're like, "Wait, you want you want to backstab him?" with a ballista <laughs> and they can't find anything in the rules against it so they're like i guess it has to happen yeah. but i want you to know that this is the stupidest thing that has ever happened yeah. Yeah. but the other one is after the wizard dies the guy burns up the new wizard um and it, there, he, you know the gm's like all right you've never seen this guy before you don't know him like you should be suspicious and they're like oh we need a wizard. Come with us. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and he yeah. just joins the group. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about anything that's you know not role playing? Right? Like a, like you really what you watched Firefly for example, and you thought, wow, it'd be cool to play in a game where people's fat pants blow off, but in a Firefly sort of context. Are there any films that you or TV shows you've watched that have thought, wow, I want to want to have a game that's like that? Mm. Oh, there, there's probably been so many. Um, let me ponder this for just a second. I'm going over my movie collection in my head and the ones that just have, um, you know, so many views on them. It, it's never hit me in this context until right now, but I would have to say Mulan, uh, the, the Disney movie. Yes. Yep. You know, because you, you have this oddball character coming to the situation where the odds are against her. Nobody knows who she really is, but, but she believes so strongly in what she's doing that... You know, she she fights through it and and uses you know not her not her brawn but her brains to figure everything out and yeah, it's just I love that story. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh no, I, I don't. I think um, I don't think anybody else has picked a Disney uh, movie. For that, but, <laughs> but sure, no, I mean it, it's not really about you know how explicit it is or you know like it's like just having a something about the story that that resonates and and i think that a good story is a good story regardless of the of the medium that it's told and that's that's really um what i was what i was driving at with that two questions so perfect okay so who is your favorite villain and why okay this one i thought about and i have to go back to disney because it's scar um from the lion king yeah Sorry, I guess I'm a youngin. I watched a lot of Disney, you know, in there with like the um, Rob Zombie like horror movies, like following Lion King with Devil's Rejects. Right. Um, Scar has a a rightful claim, right, for what he's doing. You know, he he believes that he should be king. Um, His brother was stronger than him. Right. So in the story, it kind of develops that so basically his brother bullied him out of the position because yes. Star is smart, but he is not strong. Right. And and Scar never sits around and explains what he's going to do. Right. Scar acts. Scar, yes. um, you know, is is in motion on what he's doing, and he puts himself out there. You know, he's not sending other people out. He is the one in there in the middle of the fight. Right. Um, I love him as a villain, and um, I can't remember his name right now, but the guy who voices him, Jeremy Irons, I think it is. Yeah, I think you're right. You're oh. right yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's one of the, I think, three or four types of villains that have, have come up, up uh, as answers to this question. So uh, Scar is the, um, is the Lex Luthor-style um, mm-hmm. villain in that they're only a villain because of the fact that the story is being told from Simba's viewpoint mm-hmm. 
and and Lex Luthor is only the villain because it's being told from Superman's viewpoint. So there's nothing actually wrong with him. It's only because we're watching it through the prism of the of what is the hero of the story. Yeah, goes, I don't I don't like the evil for the sake of evil. Um, no, no. It just it never makes much sense. Like, okay, you're bad because you're bad. That's really motivating. I'm glad you yeah. have an evil empire. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think anybody's chosen anybody um, along those those lines. The other ones that we uh, that were sort of struck upon is, is the Joker, where um, we are completely incapable of um, having an emotional attachment to what it is that they're trying to achieve, right? Like they're they're un they're unfathomable. It's kind of like the uh, the great old ones from Call of Cthulhu, that sort of idea. We can't possibly fathom. Um, what it is that they want to do, or why it is that they want to do it, but they obviously feel very, very strongly about it. And then you've got the the Hannibal Lecter type, who is abhorrent in so many ways, but also has so many characteristics that we can identify with and um, and uh, respect. You know, like he's well, and characteristics that we'd like to see in ourselves. Right. Like he's so smart. He's so well spoken. You know, he's such like a, a well traveled, well educated person. Um, he just kills and eats people. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then and then you've got the uh, the Hans Gruber style uh, villain where you can easily identify with their motives. Who doesn't want to be rich and not have to do anything? Who doesn't want to you know retire on twenty percent? But and is also smart, right? Because we identify with that identify with that uh, smartness. So there's nothing really about Hans Gruber that there is not like he's obviously a baddie, and mm-hmm. he's got. You know these motivations for getting what it is that he wants, but we can totally agree with or totally empathise with his ultimate goal. Whereas we can't empathise with Hannibal Lecter's ultimate goal. We can empathise with some of his characteristics, not his ultimate goal. We can't identify with the Joker at all because we don't we don't have to share the same frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the Lex Luthor, where we can totally empathise with his goal. Everybody's been misunderstood, right? You've got this idea with there's not just two sides to the story, there's three sides to the story, there's your side, there's my side, and the truth that lies somewhere in between. And who am I to say who's closer to that truth, because it's all from my own perspective. So, so yeah, um, Simba, right, so he's like a Lex Luthor type, uh, like type villain, and, and I guess a lot of people gravitate towards those types of characters, because it's that, that ambiguity, that, mm-hmm. um, that complexity of the, of the character that, that people find um, inspiring. Yeah, well, well it is that, that moral ambiguity, and that hard decision, and that gray area, and, and we love to throw that into games. Mm. We absolutely love to force the hard decision. Yeah, absolutely. Like, do, do I kill this kid, or do I let the zombie outbreak spread? Like, right. That that should be a hard decision. Nobody should be able to. And I've had I, I had a dread scenario like that, and they decided to let the kid live. Right. You know, and and the the end Crazy. scene as we described it, it was you know the kid spreading this horrible disease um, to the rescuers. Right. Yeah. That's um. There's a, another podcast I listened to, which is on the Smodcast Podcast Network. Tell them Steve Dave, which has got a uh, couple of. Um, of Kevin Smith's old friends and and also um, one of their friends and one of the questions that they did a poll in the comic book like comic book men are you familiar with the show comic book men? Uh, I've I've I heard of it I haven't watched underneath it. Underneath the Walking Dead. Um, but um, mm-hmm. anyway, so Walt and uh, and Brian Johnson um, and Brian Quinn are the, are the hosts of the show and and Walt did a about a year ago now did a, a quiz of some of the people coming into the the secret stash the comic book shop that, that's sort of the center of that show and one of the questions they asked was. If you could be taken back to 1875 or whatever the year was, uh, could you kill baby Hitler? Little baby Hitler in his crib, could you kill 
little baby Hitler, right? Considering what he's what he's going to go ahead and do, right? It's a little bit. I mean, I think probably killing baby Hitler might be a little bit more difficult than killing the kid with the uh, with the you know the zombie outbreak. But um, but it's the same sort of idea, right? This greater good idea, and can you do what what needs to be done? Well, and and it's the whole do the do the ends justify the means? Mm, yeah, and what does it say about although the ends may justify the means, can a person? I don't think a person's morals stand up to that. Well, and it's... Oh, it, decisions like that in those scenarios, like, wig me out. I I was watching a documentary, and they were they were putting these questions to people and then scanning their brain at the same time. And, you know, like, your village is being raided. You know, you have a small child who's crying, but you guys are hiding. You have to silence the child. Yeah. To silence the child and save the village, you will have to suffocate the child. Like, right. can you do it? Right. And oh, I, I'm like, I don't ever want to answer that question. Yeah. I don't even want to think about it. I don't want to put myself in that position. Right, yeah. That's like the episode of MASH, right? Where there's the, I don't know if you're familiar with MASH, where Hawkeye's on the bus and then there's the, the North Koreans and, and the woman's, and he's going crazy, right? Because, well, part of him going crazy is that in, in his recollection, the woman's holding a chicken and the chicken's making a noise, right? And, you know, he's like, why doesn't he, she doesn't like ring that chicken's neck so that stops making a noise. But then slowly as he works through this, they realize it was actually a baby that this woman has to suffocate in order to, um, so that the North Koreans mm-hmm. don't find them on this, this bus. Same sort of idea. Yes, don't want to be in that position myself either. Let's move on. Okay, so... <laughs> So if that you got could, really dark. <laughs> sorry, if you could become a character in a role playing game, what would be? It doesn't mean like you get a chance to play your favorite character in your role, your favorite role playing game. It's like poof, you are a character in a role playing game. Kristen suddenly becomes like a, a wizard in Dungeons and Dragons or, or something like that. I would go to a free market. I don't know if you've experienced free market at all. I haven't experienced free uh, market. No, but but go ahead. Yeah, I, I would go to that. Um, how about Cory Doctorow's work, um, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom? Right. Familiarity. You, you've reached that um, that that point where, um, you know, death is no longer an issue. Right. Money is not an issue. We can make anything. We can um, we can defeat any disease. So everything is ran on social currency. Right. You know, you you don't need money. You don't have to worry about all these other things. Because they've all been taken care of. So what do you do? How do you judge your worth? And in free market, it's all about trying to convince people who don't need anything to buy in and give you social currency for the thing that um, that um, the, the thing that you made or the thing that you're doing. And, you know, it's tempting to look at um, my my favorite games and all that. And then you think about, like, the people who are at Renaissance fairs and being like, oh, I should have been born during this time. And you're like, yeah, really, you shouldn't have. Yeah. Because it's dirty and diseased and you would have been miserable and yeah, had to work your whole life. Like you do, yeah. Yeah. And then just die early. Like, yeah. why would you want to do that? And I, my favorite systems, I was thinking about this question going, I don't actually want to be put into any of the games that I play except for free market. Right. Because it's such like a happy, like, I'm not going to die. And if I die, my memory's backed up and I'm just going to come back. Right. Why wouldn't I want to get there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, so do you have any dice superstitions? No. Oh, God, I hate dice superstitions. And some of my players, if they listen to this, are going to be angry at me or with me. But no, you can't train your dice. You can't get the bad rolls out. You can't lose the bad rolls in the beginning. Like, I'm a very skeptical, science-minded kind of person. Mm. Every dice roll has a probability. Yes, 
Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm I'm with you on that one 100. percent But uh, Farrell in episode uh, eight called me a called me a cold automaton before I knew that I didn't have any dice superstitions. He said, <laughs> like, if somebody doesn't, then they must be a, a cold-hearted automaton, not to feel that there's some essence in dice that you can somehow wrangle and harness and turn to your uh, turn to your advantage. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. I just whatever dice are around. I'll yeah. I'll I have a I have a friend, and she's very dear to me. But she's kind of the more Air quotes again, spiritual kind of right. people. Um, you know, it does tarot cards, and if she gets tarot cards, she has to hold them and like put her imprint on them. And I bought her a set of dice because right. she has to have matching dice. Yes. Um, so I found these really pretty dice for her, and I gave them to her. And she was angry at her husband because he kept threatening to play with them before she could imprint on the dice. Right. And she believed that she had to make the first roll in an actual game with the dice so that they were her dice. Right. Of course. Before anyone else could use them. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I love you, honey, but oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there are more there are more harmful things that people could believe in, but yeah, that's uh that's certainly that's certainly up there. Um so what's your role playing elevator pitch, including your go to example? Uh for role playing in general. Yep. Somebody's you go, um, you're uh, at work or you're somewhere in some social setting and you're about to go to your role-playing game and somebody says to you, so Kristen, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going role-playing. And they say, role-playing? What's that? And you say... <laughs> I'm really bad at this elevator pitch. <laughs> I always fail, like every time I try and explain this to somebody. Um, I I try and do the whole like well we have characters and this character is represented by you know numbers rep- that you know correspond to their stats and abilities and we tell a story using these characters and then it always comes up well you know how do you win yes. like well you don't <laughs> <laughs> if you're having fun you're winning. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I always fell the elevator pitch. I've never sold to anyone. Right. Um, my dad and I have had this discussion numerous times, and he, he still can't wrap his brain around the fact that we're sitting here doing something that you can't win at that has no end. That's right, yeah. That's that's the two hardest thing. There is no winning and there is no end. Yeah, like, how do you know when you finish? Well, you just... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, so the last question, here's the sort of the sum, like the summation of everything that you've talked about so far on a way to... Uh, to show off your um, your grasp on this this crazy hobby that we have, so totaling one hundred GM plus system plus players, how much do you give to each one? Okay, I want to be a smart ass and go fifty fifty fifty, but I don't want you to think I'm slow. Um, and well, 50, I was 50, going fifty years one hundred and fifty, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's you mean 33, 33, <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I was going to divide it up evenly, and then I got to thinking back about World of Darkness. Right. And and I think I want to go probably 35, 35, 30, or maybe even 40, 40, 20. Right. Is that right? Yeah. I, I would almost have to go 40, 40, 20, um, 20 on the system. Right. And I absolutely love and adore Burning Will because it facilitates all the things that I like to do in game. Um, by the same token, World of Darkness, uh, and you, you could write me hate mail about this, so that's okay. I love getting hate mail. Uh, is weak and simple. Right. Uh, how, how I view World of Darkness is that it is 
it's not a very strong system. It doesn't do what they say the game should do. Uh, It's fun as shit if you have the right GM and the right players. Yes. I have some of the funnest games I've ever played in have been World of Darkness games. Because the system is easy and we can do whatever the hell we want and we just sit down and take off with it. Right. And there's no there's no big crunch. There's no math. It, it's all very simplified and easy to understand. Um, where at the same time, if you have a weak GM, and I've played in games with weak GMs, and I've played in games with GMs that you cannot trust. Right. Um, that I I have felt like I cannot reveal to the GM what I am trying to do. Yes. Because he will unfairly squish that. Right. Yeah. And. Just make me sad inside. Yes. Um, so the GM gets 40 because without a strong GM, you can run it on strong players, but it's a lot harder. But by the same token, like we talked about earlier, players have to get 40 yes. because without players doing their part in the game, without them embracing what the GM has handed them and running with it, um, you don't really have a game or you have a game that's struggling and not fun and you're just banging your head into the table trying to get through. So I think if you have stellar GMs and just fantastic all-star players, you can overcome a lesser system. Ladies and gentlemen, Kristen Hayworth. That's it for episode 21 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. Numbered and signed copies of Victoria can be found at hazardgaming.com. Click the Buy Victoria button and you will be redirected to a page where you can purchase one of the last remaining first edition, first pressing copies of the book. As well as that, you'll also find a link to Lulu where you can purchase a print-on-demand version of the book or a PDF. But for the listeners of Penny Red, if you scroll down on the right-hand side of the white part of the page until you're across from the field where you enter your email address to receive your PDF, you'll find a secret link which takes you to a page where you can buy the PDF for not $9.99, but just $6.99. You'll also find several other links there to resources which you can use in connection with the game or in connection with any game set in Victorian times, and for those resources you can pay what you like. Next week's guest is Renee Ritchie, gamer and editor from Machine Age Productions. So until then, keep talking the walk.